this event linked with this emotion created this memory in my mind. And I will never forget this memory because this, what it meant to me, is an important story to tell. So that is the voice of Don Hahn in an interview last week. And this is Stacey Julian with episode 72 of Exactly Enough Time. its title, you might think that this is a podcast about productivity. And while I love to get stuff done, exactly enough time is much more about being present. It's about recognizing the time you have and making the most of it. It's about choosing to be playful and living with intention, curiosity, and connection. It's about owning what you love and bringing more of whatever that is into your life. I am a life enthusiast and a believer. In this podcast, I tell stories and I invite you to celebrate people, places, and things that make you and your life amazing. Don Hahn produced the classic Beauty and the Beast the first animated film to receive a Best Picture nomination from the Motion Picture Academy. His next film, The Lion King, broke box office records all over the world to become the top-grossing traditionally animated film of all time and a long-running blockbuster Broadway musical. You guys, Don Hahn knows story. And I started today's episode with his words because I really want to link to the interview that he did with Harris III for a webinar called Storytelling Essentials. This webinar is free in exchange for your email address, which I believe is totally worth it. Harris III, by the way, is, among other things, the creator of an event called Story that I hope to attend one day. Now, before jumping into my topic today, I just want to say thank you for listening to episode 71 last week. Thank you for bearing with me. It was um, a difficult episode for me to wrap my brain around. And I want to publicly acknowledge once again my friend Renee Pearson and her willingness to come on with me and share a bit of her perspective and her experience Um, which is very different than mine, uh, living in the United States of America. You guys, this is a time of an opportunity to learn and unlearn and see what each of us can do in our own lives to change what needs to be changed. And I want to talk a little bit more about that at the end. But my topic today is so appropriate because I am finding as I strive to learn I like learning best from storytellers. Probably not a big surprise, right? But um, I'm going to invite you at the end of the episode to do some additional learning with me. But let's jump in. I remember hearing a long time ago that Ernest Hemingway once accepted and participated in a challenge from a group of fellow writers to see who could write the shortest story. He came back with this six-word story. For sale, colon. Baby shoes, 
never worn. It doesn't take very many words to paint a picture that elicits emotion that a wide audience can experience. I have since learned, by the way, that it's contested whether Hemingway actually wrote that story. And as I was reading about this, um, what was most interesting to me is the fact that a similar super short account was actually published in 1910 in the Spokane Press. That's a newspaper in the city where I currently live, but I digress. The general concept of trying to tell a story with an absolute minimum of words has become known by the general term of flash fiction. And the six word limit in particular has spawned the concept of six word memoirs, which includes a collection, a couple collections published in book form starting in 2008 by Smith Magazine. So did you know a mini saga is another term for a super short story of just 50 words. And I have one for you. This is titled simply Life, written by a student from Taiwan in 2002 who was planning to study for an MBA. It goes like this. A fisherman had a nice family and lived happily near the beach, fishing only for their daily needs. One day he met a businessman who said, catch more fish, buy more boats, and run a successful business. The fisherman answered, then what? Start a family and live by the beach. <laughs> okay, so a microfiction is a story with a limit of 100 words, and sudden fiction is what you get with 750 well-chosen words. Why am I sharing this information on stories that are literally short? Listen to this message I received recently from my listener, Jennifer Gilman. Hi, Stacy. My name is Jennifer, and I have listened to all of your podcasts. Um, I just re-listened to the five stories. And my question is this. Do you, do you have any tips on how to make our stories um, a little shorter? I tend to be really wordy, and I feel like that's going to get boring. I want something, not that I have to be catchy, but I just don't want it to be too long. So if you have any tips, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so I do apologize for the static in that clip. I tried to fix it and I can't figure it out. But I wanted you to hear Jennifer's voice because I think she has a really great question. Sometimes we don't know how to tighten up what we want to say, whether we're writing one complete story or we're just journaling on a scrapbook page or even in even in a personal journal. How do we say what we want to say with the least number of words that will make an impact. I definitely do not have all the answers, but the ability to tell a short, compelling story and to help others do the same has been a passion of mine ever since I was invited to author my first official book called Simple Scrapbooks. It was published in 2000. I'm getting old, you guys. But in that book was my first iteration of a project concept that I have been teaching in one form or another ever since. Okay, so for many years, I called this concept Pictures I Love, and it then kind of morphed into Photos I Love. Because the purpose was to help would-be storytellers focus on one photo that they truly loved 
one photo that elicited more emotion than others. And then to dig deeper into the meaning or the emotion behind that photo, right? And, and learn how to reveal in a short paragraph or so the actual meaning, the story, the takeaway, the reason that you love that photo so very much. That's the concept of photos I love. It's this opportunity to write a short story that goes beyond what we customarily do on scrapbook pages, which is to document the who, what, where, and when, right? The basic information. Um, Photos I love is an opportunity to dig deeper and reveal the personal meaning behind that information. And it's so much fun. Now, you're going to think I'm putting you off, but before I share or attempt to share something smart and actionable for Jennifer and for others, I want to read you what has been my favorite short story since the seventh grade. And God bless Mr. Irby at Kenmore Junior High who planted in me a desire to write. I'm so grateful for teachers who reach the hearts of their students. Okay, so this is a short story by Somerset Mom. It's called Merchant in Baghdad. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. And in a little while, the servant came back white and trembling and said, Master, just now when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned, I saw that it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now lend me your horse and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, and the servant mounted it, and he dug his spurs into its flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he went. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw me standing in the crowd, and he came to me and said, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? That was not a threatening gesture, I said. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad. For I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. (gasps) Isn't that a crazy story? I remember thinking in the seventh grade, you guys, how much suspense was conveyed in a paragraph and a half. So it has everything to do with characters, perspective, crisis, and just the right amount of detail. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about what I've learned from storyteller Donald Davis about the importance of crisis in telling our stories. He says in his book, Telling Your Own Stories, the central hinge of any story plot is a crisis. We must be careful, however, that we do not define the term crisis too narrowly. It is tempting to think of crisis in terms of heart attacks, house fires, job losses, death, and any number of other uninvited events which disrupt the course of one's hoped-for life history. But a crisis is not just an involuntary event which overtakes us against our will. A crisis is any happening which takes a part of our lives which we are comfortable with and turns it upside down, so that we have to adjust to a world that is shaped differently than before. 
This means that many of the most significant crises in our family lives are crises we volunteer for. I love that. As a scrapbooker who, for the most part, documents happy events and occasions, I love that because it says to me there can still be a crisis in the middle of a vacation or a move or a new baby entering the home. There are little upside down episodes all the time in everyday life. And I think quite often those photos that we love the most, if we think about it, represent either that upside downness or coming back out of it to a place of understanding or just feelings that stem from intense affection, right? Or or moments where we've recognized something in ourselves or we have recognized the importance of a relationship or a moment as a point where a lesson was taught or learned. In an article she wrote for the Harvard Business Review, Carolyn O'Hara says, keep it simple. Not every story you tell has to be a surprising edge-of-your-seat epic. Some of the most successful and memorable stories are relatively simple and straightforward. Don't let needless details detract from your core message. Work from the principle that less is more. One of the biggest mistakes you can make is putting in too much detail of the wrong kind. Don't tell your audience what day of the week it was, for instance, or what shoes you were wearing if it doesn't advance the story in an artful way. But transporting your audience with a few interesting, well-placed details, how you felt, the expression on a face, the humble beginnings of a now great company, can immerse your listeners and drive your message home. Okay, so just a little more advice from another person that I view as a storytelling expert before I try to distill this down into some advice you can walk away with. If you haven't heard of Brandon Stanton or his project, Humans of New York, you should probably stop listening to me right now and open Instagram and then go follow Humans of New York. But it began as a photography project in 2010. The initial goal was to photograph 10,000 New Yorkers on the street and create an exhaustive catalogs I'm sorry, an exhaustive catalog of the city's inhabitants. But quoting Brandon, somewhere along the way, I began to interview my subjects in addition to photographing them. And alongside their portraits, I would include quotes and short stories from their lives. So he became more of a, he was kind of a reluctant storyteller, if you will. He set out as a photographer and he really has become much more of a storyteller. Well, recently, as you know, in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic, New Yorkers are less at liberty to to walk the streets. And so Brandon has had to be creative in how to gather stories. And I read a post that he wrote um, where he said, I was initially worried about doing my interviews remotely. I thought that without the context of the street, the stories might lose their sense of immediacy and randomness. But the experiment has been quite a success. These remote interviews have been a real joy for me. It's been great to connect even over video. The stories have been really beautiful and the extra supply of photographs has added another dimension. 
So he says, I'm looking forward to exploring this process even more. And he thanks everyone who has submitted their stories, which is how he's now meeting people and collecting stories. But he's, he kind of offers some really interesting advice. He says, it can sometimes be a puzzle to distill such rich narratives in short form. I do want to provide some guidance on what's been working so far. Many of the strongest submissions have involved relationships. <laughs> I think our voices tend to be most compelling when talking about other people and not just quote why this person is great, but what this person did and how it impacted me. Bonus points for the crazy coincidence, the unexplainable event, the hilarious accident, the outsized personality, right? Because several of the most recent submissions have featured these, but a story can be strong without a twist. It cannot be strong without a transformation. So tell me how you were changed, but more importantly, tell me who changed you. Okay, scrapbookers, you're going to love this next part coming from Brandon, who was initially and still is a photographer. He says it always helps to include a photo. And then he gives this advice. Strong writing is not a requirement. So you don't have to feel like a writer. There's no need to write three pages. And don't worry about being a master storyteller. Just tell me what happened in your own words in two or three paragraphs. And then he goes on to say and describe what will happen if your story is selected. But I love this last part. It says it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you're fancy or fascinating. Just tell me one of the best things that's ever happened to you. Or even better, tell me one of the best people that has ever happened to you. So he kind of circles back around to that idea of focusing on relationships. Okay, I know that seems like a whole lot of randomness, so I'm going to now try and distill this down into some concrete takeaways. Number one is the essential characters in a story. Who are they? Can you briefly introduce them and the setting, if the, if the setting is important, but tell me who's involved, the characters. Number two, you will definitely be most comfortable writing, at least authoritatively, from your own perspective using your own voice. But you might also consider telling a story from an unexpected viewpoint. In the short story, A Merchant from Baghdad, the story is told from the perspective of death. So think about other people in your story, the characters, and whose perspective does it make sense to tell, especially in light of the crisis. Okay, which is number three. Number three is the crisis. Remember that a crisis can be a good thing, a completely good thing, but it's a thing that causes us to question or revisit the relationship that we have with the world or think that we have with the world. Number four are the details. Use just enough to paint a visual story. I actually enrolled, this was back in 2012, in a week-long seminar with Donald Davis, and he said something I've always remembered and I've shared, I think, before. He said, writing stories is easier after you learn to tell them and after you practice telling them for a while. And when you read or hear a story, you're not picturing words in your mind, you're picturing pictures. You're creating a little movie. So when you write a story, make sure that there are enough or there is enough information, enough details that the listener can watch this little movie in their mind. Isn't that good? Number five, 
people, and relationships. The more you can remove yourself from an event focus and shift to the people and the relationships you have with those people, the more interesting any story will be. But when you're attempting to write a shorter story, start with the people and quickly convey the change that they have helped you create. If this is part of an event, that will naturally come out, but start with the people. I will, of course, summarize all of this in the show notes, but remember, it's characters, it's voice, crisis, details, and people slash relationships. Okay, you guys, what I want to do now is kind of circle back around to this idea of pictures or photos I love, which now in its latest iteration is something that I'm calling stories I love. Um, simply because I've created a product kit that can help you begin to look at the pictures, especially the pictures you love most, with this view of of story, pulling the important personal meaning, the emotion out of that memory and getting it documented. I love to teach that there are layers of information available to us. Layer number one is just those, the who, what, where, when, right? The, the facts. It's just the basic information um, that we tend to go to as the story, which is not the full story. But if I can get you to write that information down, then you can choose to either include some of it or just set it aside as not important to what you really want to explore. Okay, layer number two is the context. That's when you say what's actually happening in the photo and what was happening at the time I took the photo. And that again is important so that you can help decipher for yourself what do I need to include as I go deeper and explore the meaning that I really want to share that I know will be so satisfying if I can right get it out of me. And then that third layer, this is where the magic happens. So I want you to understand that this isn't easy. It's not crazy hard, but it's not um, supernatural, right? To go past layer one and layer two down to layer three, which is what makes this particular photo special to you, right? How does it make you feel and what do you learn or what did you learn in the experience that you've captured with this photo. Okay, so now what I want to do is just share with you, um, and this is kind of a funny thing to do via podcast, audio only, but I wanna share with you a couple of the entries from my Stories I Love collection. Okay, this first photo is a picture of me and my mother-in-law taken just before I married her son, and, um, and this is what I wrote. I don't remember where or exactly when this picture was taken. It doesn't really matter. What's important is that this is the only photo of just me and Valerie Rose Julian. Valerie is my mother-in-law who died just days after my second wedding anniversary. She was a strong and independent woman who fought hard for two years before losing her battle with cancer. Our relationship didn't start out very well. She made it quite clear that my timing was off. I showed up and stole away precious time with her only son at a time when she really needed his attention. And to be honest, she wasn't the kind, soft-spoken mother-in-law I had imagined for myself, either. But now, I long to sit arm-in-arm with Val. Now that I've lived with her remarkable son for twelve years, I see her influence on his life every day. And now that I have four boys of my own, 
I'm beginning to understand how she loved him and needed to connect with him. I'm finding that after 12 years of marriage, I am stronger and more independent than I thought I was. I'm certainly not always soft-spoken. Valerie and I are a lot alike. I think she would be proud of me and the direction my life has taken. I think now I'd listen to her advice. It's clear to me that her timing was off. She left our lives way too early, and I wish I could sit and talk with her again. Okay, this next picture is of my husband looking into my grandmother's eye with one of those handheld instruments. I think it's called an ophthalmoscope. (laughs) I don't know if I'm saying that right. This is the story. Jeff and Addie Hall are perhaps two of the most caring people I know. Neither is pretentious in any way. They both naturally look for and strive to meet the needs of others. Grandma, even in her 90s, was delivering meals to quote-unquote old people in their 70s. She would make sandwiches and give them to the homeless people downtown Seattle. She always had a keen interest in those who didn't quite fit in. Jeff was hospitalized frequently as a young boy. Ever since then, he has wanted to be a doctor. He is now known for his bedside manner. When we attend events, nurses and office staff tell me how much they enjoy working with my husband. He is intelligent and capable, but also approachable and without airs. Grandma was so excited when Jeff graduated with his MD. She often asked him questions about her health. On this day, Grandma asked Jeff to look into her eye. Jeff is not an eye doctor, but he knew that wasn't important to her. More than an accurate exam, Addie needed some kind attention. I wonder if that is what we all need from time to time. When it comes to seeing others, I look to these two. They definitely see eye to eye. My final story is illustrated by a photo of my two oldest sons, at the time seven and five years old. They're sitting with arms around each other on the steps of a swimming pool. My older son Clark has goggles on his face. My younger son Chase has goggles positioned on top of his head. I wrote, I love this picture. It reminds me of a fun weekend trip we took to Seattle. But that's not why I love it. I love it for what happened right after I snapped it. My sweet little Chase, who, by the way, rarely looks at the camera, made his way urgently to the side of the pool and burst into tears. Chase, what's the matter? I ask. Oh, Mom, I'm so sad. Sob, sob. I can't find my goggles, and I wanted to wear them in the picture like Clark did, and I can't find them, and I think they're lost. Chase, I said, trying not to laugh. Don't cry, honey. I know where your goggles are. (gasps) You do, Mom? Yes, sweetheart, I do. Take your hand and go like this, as I touched the top of my head. (gasps) Oh, thanks, Mommy. Chase then positioned his goggles over his eyes and exclaimed, Can we take another picture now, please? It's such a cute story. But you know what? I actually love to share that story with this idea. The idea that answers to life's most perplexing problems are quite often closer than we think they are. 
Chase in this story just believes his goggles are gone. He's never going to find them again when in fact they're sitting on the top of his head. So sometimes we just need someone to point out the truth that we can't see. And I know I don't need to say this to you, but I really truly believe in the power of stories and storytelling to help us find the answers we are seeking and most need. I want to end today by thanking Jennifer for her very thoughtful question. And I want to thank all of you, each of you, for listening each week. I'm going to post the photos that inspired the stories I shared with you to my show notes at stacyjulian.com. I will also put information there. If you don't know about the products that I've created with Close to My Heart, I'll put specific information about that Stories I Love kit because it can help you move past those layers of information and get to the heart of the story that you most want to tell and be able to do it in a short, compelling way. I'm no Ernest Hemingway, but I can help you improve your own personal storytelling for sure. And don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to that interview that Harris III did with Don Hahn because it's so much about the power and essential nature of stories, especially in times like these. Okay, you guys, stay open and be kind and come back next week because I will be here with another episode of Exactly Enough Time. Don't forget that episode 77 is a Q&A. I want to answer your questions. You can send them to me via email or leave them in the show notes at stacyjulian.com. You can reach out to me on Instagram at stacyjulian or send me a speak pipe message. I want to hear from you.